Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Recapables Billions, a podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Allison Herman. I write about TV for TheRinger.com. And joining me on the other line, he's breaking it down to Nelly in an elevator. It's our Billions recapper, Miles Suri. How you doing? Hey, happy to be here. We should get right to it. We're at DEF CON 6. Miles, the scale starts at 1. Whatever. <laughs> Buddy, I got billions of dollars, hundreds of employees, and two kids at home who think I can fly. Now, what the fuck do you have? The only thing you need. More. All the same. Get the fuck out. Oh, man. What a week. This was a big episode. There is... Lots to talk about, but if we're being real, there's only one thing to talk about. Shout out to Daniel K. Isaac. What a spotlight week for him. What did you think of this episode? Uh, This episode was really fun. Um, I just love that both um, Ben Kim was able to get his confidence up. You know, that that was a big deal for him. And and, uh, we'll probably talk mostly just about that elevator scene (laughs) for this uh, episode. But also I loved... um, that Chuck, you know, made some real progress um, getting some dirt on Jock Jeffcoat and his brother, who I guess is some kind of Joel Austin type with a megachurch. Yeah, the Jeffcoats really strike me as a Mad Libs of every possible reference to things going on in conservative America right now. He's like, like Jeffcoat himself is clearly Rex Tillerson. He's, you know, this multimillionaire higher-up cabinet official. He's a former governor of Texas, so he's kind of like George W. Bush. His brother's a televangelist, and then they own a bunch of TV stations, which strikes me as very Sinclair Broadcasting. But before we dive into the specifics, first of all, I should mention that this is written by uh, Brian Koppelman, David Levine, and Matt Finnell. Apologies if I'm mispronouncing or improperly emphasizing uh, that last name. But, you know, it's another episode that's co-written by the showrunners, which would explain why this is, like, a full 58 minutes. And I took, I think, like, two and a half single-space pages of notes, which you probably could for any episode of Billions. But this was just (laughs) a very, very dense episode of what is already typically a very dense show. It was directed by Jake Polonsky. And before we break down and get into the nitty-gritty, let's just do the quick 42-second recap. I will never not feel strange about throwing it to myself, but here we go. (laughs) Good luck. Before Axe even has the chance to lose Andalov's money, Andalov pulls half of it to make an oil play, which is kind of a problem because Axe suddenly looks like he's lost billions of dollars right before a funding raise. In a mad scramble for cash, Axe contemplates selling 20% of the company to a greaseball named Froddy until some folksy advice from Bruno the Pizza Guy convinces him not to. Well, that and Froddy overplaying his hand. So instead, he makes up the difference by torpedoing Taylor's relationship for no reason because Andalov doesn't pull the money after all. Meanwhile, Chuck starts to discreetly sniff around Jock Jeffcoat's finances with some help from Mr. Sacker, and guess what? They're not entirely above board. Finally, Wendy encourages Ben Kim to break out of his shell, which he chooses to do at the worst possible time in front of a bunch of buttoned-up pension fund managers from the Midwest. But what Ben loses the firm in capital, half a billion dollars for what it's worth, he makes up for in confidence. Whew. Okay. Not bad. Not bad. I think there's a lot of complex finance things going on with the specifics of the Jeffcoat fortune, with why Axe needs to possibly sell a stake in his company, why he chooses not to. But 
You know, I think the thing that we're going to be talking about, in part because it is the simplest thing to understand and in part because it is the most instantly jiffable thing I have ever witnessed on the show, including Paul Giamatti getting peed on in the very first scene. <laughs> it's Ben Kim. Bat. What a I'm moment. What a moment for Ben Kim. And I love that, you know, Wendy obviously encourages him right before he hops in the elevator that he needs to do it. He needs to man up and just, you know, get this off his back. And then naturally he jumps in the elevator just as Axe is going down with people who, again, they're going to give Axe like $500 million. I believe they're from like Kansas or somewhere in the Kansas Midwest. Kansas City, which yep. might be KCMO, Kansas City, Missouri. But the point being, the geographical signifier is these are not people who will take very kindly to someone taking off his shirt in an elevator and grinding up on both his bosses and his potential business partners. <laughs> yes. And so obviously Axe isn't as upset with him as he would have been because uh, Ben gave him a really good play in Milwaukee related to two airports that could possibly merge or one would acquire the other. And there was also I, some reference to beer in there. I don't know. I just yeah, heard Wisconsin. <laughs> it was uh, Milwaukee, lots of money. So I'm curious, you know, if that does that offset the $500 million? Is that going to make them more money? Is it enough that, um, I, you know, I, I showed it to a uh, ringer intern, Rob Schaefer, and he's like, wait, I, well, he liked the video, but he's like, why is this guy just not getting fired on the spot for losing, like, all that money? It's like, well, maybe that play was pretty good, and maybe Axe is just really happy that Ben Kim finally got some confidence. Truly, imagine a workplace where this is not an instantly fireable offense. Even just, like, playing Nelly at that volume in a public place, I feel like, would be looked down as professional conduct, let alone dancing to it, let alone telling someone else to do that. I feel like Wendy should be catching some flack here. You know, I think— our listeners can probably deduce that The Ringer is a very free-flowing, open workplace. We're very lucky to work with a lot of people who share our passions. Um, I don't think either of us would feel comfortable doing this. Yeah, if I ever did that in front of Sean Fennessy, he would give me one glare and I'd probably sweat out like 10 pounds. Sean Fennessy does not look kindly on members of this office wearing shorts, wearing above-the-knee garments. Uh, I can't even imagine what his reaction would be to someone doing this, but maybe he can tell us when he finally watches the episode on Wednesday <laughs> or on Sunday. Sorry. So I would say we should get to the awards, but I think it's pretty obvious by now we've already gotten into the most scarring moment of the week. There's really only one candidate here, even though it does give Ben Kim the confidence to make to announce his play. He's no longer pee shy. His bosses are <laughs> proud of him. It's a happy ending. But what was your, I'm very curious, what was your like instant physical reaction once that scene started happening? Honestly, I, 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 I it wasn't as cringy for me as I was just laughing my ass off because I, I was thinking like, what exactly could he do uh, throughout that episode? Like, what could he do to break out of his shell, like, what is the thing that's actually going to get him out of it? And I, and I did think that it would involve some kind of, like, like I thought maybe he'd just, like, jump on the desk and start dancing to something. But, um, you know, getting into an elevator with Axe and slowly removing his clothes was probably not in, in the te top ten things I would have expected. I, I, 
Obviously, it is very scarring, but, you know, give Daniel K. Isaac some credit. He's got some moves. He does. I literally screamed no into my <laughs> into my bedroom. Luckily, I live in a very tiny studio apartment, so I don't think my neighbors overheard me. But even if they did, I think they would understand if they saw what I was looking at. <laughs> I mean, I will be honest and say throughout most of this episode, this was less a C-plot to me than maybe like a G-plot. There were just like a couple little scenes of him talking to Wendy about how he didn't have the confidence to make a pitch. And, you know, he stood up to Dollar Bill last week, but the backlash was made him even more timid and regressive than he was before. I was also a little worried that Wendy encouraging Ben to be a little more vicious means kind of losing some of that endearing sweetness that— Where's my fudgy the whale quality? That's why we love him so much. Maybe he'd compromise his values or something really dark. But then this suddenly merges with the main plot of Axe trying to get money to make up for this apparent loss in this really spectacular way. I should really never doubt this show's ability to play the long game and make all the plots tie together. But this is clearly the most scarring moment of the week. But we need at least like one other contender. So do you think you could throw one to us? Oh, definitely. Um, and that would be Wendy being forced to host Jock Jeffcoat and his wife for dinner because for some reason, uh, both of them have grown tired of restaurant food and want something uh, home cooked, which also leads to Wendy saying restaurant eating. Like it's like being tired of air flying. What other kind is there? I feel like on Billions, on a show made by people who are clearly as enthusiastic about food and restaurants and chefs as Cobbleman and Levine are, that's like the worst thing you could possibly do or say. Be like, I'm just not into eating out in New York anymore. Immediately, I thought of Mallory Rubin and her uh, Postmates obsession. I mean, look, I love a home-cooked meal. I'm as passionate about, you know, I brought some brownies into the office today. I love making things with my hands. It's a great project. But just— you know, combined with everything else. And, you know, it's combined with the fact that the, his Mrs. Jeff Code thinks people get sexually assaulted on sub. Okay, the subways can be, yes. like, a pretty gnarly place, but there's some clear connotations to, again, while we're talking about the Jeff Coats as these mad libs of shitty Republican Trumpian things, Jeff Coat uses the shithole slur to talk about, you know, probably majority people of color neighborhoods that he passes on his way in from the airport. Mrs. Jeff Coat is like, oh, the subways are the scary place. So I feel like being like, I'm not into eating out in New York, although Jeff Coat would probably be eating at like multiple starred, very expensive restaurants. It's part of that. I'm rejecting everything that makes the city vibrant and colorful and interesting and I just like safe and conservative things. And it's this like very subtle cue of these are boring and distasteful people. Yeah. And also um, in the brief moment that we do see Chef Ryan, Axe's chef who Wendy gets to cater that dinner. So she doesn't really do home cooking, but uh, I'm sure Chef Ryan cooked up something nice. Um, You know, Jock talks about how like, you know, there's this, like, roadkill chili that you can make from just about any kind of meat except for skunk because it smells. And so he's, he's again, trying to poo-poo, like, Chef Ryan's fancy, like, tuna dish because he's like, well, you know, here in the South, we just will put anything together in a chili and it tastes just as good. So, again, he's, like, doing that sort of uppity conservatism thing where it's like, well, what we do is better anyway or or, or it can be just as good. 
Is this the first time that we've seen Chef Ryan since getting a blowjob by the pool, or is that just like seared in my memory as what <laughs> Chef know, Ryan it's, is? It's seared in all in all our memories, unfortunately. But we have seen him earlier this season. Um, he cooked some burgers for Exodus. Oh, right. They're trying to mimic the Killer Mike thing. Yes, exactly. You know, that's always going to define him. I feel like we should just admit that right now. I'm never, I'm never going to have any other memory. It's just going to eclipse it all. But That's yeah. what I put in my recap. It's like, you remember Chef Ryan, the blowjob chef. <laughs> <laughs> this is also a show where it's like a prestige cable show where neither of the two leads have really had a lot of explicit sex scenes, Mr. and Mrs. Martinez aside. And I thought mm-hmm. the Chef Ryan thing was like, uh, okay, we're going to get some like really uh, over-the-top nudity at some point. But there's also this weird like gender role thing where Jeff Code is essentially demanding that Wendy, this professional woman who is also a mother of two and is you know, a powerful person who has a lot of other stuff to do in her life. I think he's implicitly demanding that she cook for him, and you get that amazing line delivery. I'm really supposed to cook for these people? Maggie Siff is wonderful. That's just like, am I I supposed to cook for these people? (laughs) And I think there was a little bit of disapproval that she didn't do that, which is another, like, you know, the Jeff Coats are really regressive, and they're just all these little we don't like these people signals. I feel like the show is throwing down. But yeah, I there's definitely some tension there because Chuck is, unbeknownst to Jock Jeffcoat, investigating his finances. And the reason why he's late is that he's in New Jersey and in a scene that I thought was very reminiscent of the Pine Barrens episode of The Sopranos, he has his car break down on the side of the road where he doesn't have any cell service. No service. Oh... Motherfucker. Motherfucker! We don't actually see, like, how he gets back, right? Yeah, like, did he, like, hitch a ride or just... Yeah, actually, that that's a great question. We have no idea how he got back. Yeah, I was like, I thought we were going to get, like, a whole 20-minute, like, scramble and he was going to have to walk somewhere and I... I don't even know, but they just fast-forwarded right past that, and he does make it to the dinner, and Jeff Goat thinks that he is investigating something secretly, but it's just, like, a big win that he's preparing. But yeah, Chuck is uh, trying to take out his own boss. How how confident are we of his chances? Um, you know, I, I fairly confident, but someone's going to get hurt in the crossfires. There's no way he, you know, does this and gets away with it completely clean. I mean, for instance, uh... Carnegie has an idea now at the FBI that Chuck might be onto something because one of the agents that um, is friendly with Sacker uh, says something that Carnegie overhears about, like, doing something for Chuck kind of off the books. So I do think that, you know, if there is some way that this backfires for him, um, it might be through Connerty. Definitely. This is also something that I thought about because it's something that people have talked about with regards to actual Trump administration officials. A lot of what Chuck seems to be chafing at is that Jeff Code is overriding his political beliefs, which becomes an ego thing. He doesn't like being told what to do. But he also finds the things he's being asked to do, like use federal resources to prosecute street-level drug dealers, really offensive, or not prosecute Jose Lugo's probable murderers, or prosecute Jose Lugo in the first place. Which I understand why that puts Jock on his shit list, but like— if you get one Trump administration attorney general out the paint, who do you think is going to replace him? I just don't see the long game 
we're not suddenly going to get a liberal or pushover attorney general. I guess maybe someone who's a little more okay with Chuck having some autonomy, but I, I don't know. I just don't really see how this plays out beyond the immediate take Jeff Coat down. Yeah, and I, I mean, maybe for Billions, that's just kind of where it ends, because I think we talked about this last week on the pod, how, you know, perhaps the show won't be sticking into, like, the sort of government stuff as much because, uh, you know, Chuck wants to stick to, like, just, you know, doing his job instead of, like, uh, trying to get to some higher office. Yeah, and I think one of the, but one of the things the show has been smart about this season is that being a U.S. attorney is political in some way because what Mm -hmm. you choose to spend your time and money on makes a big statement, whether that's white-collar crime or immigration. It's just, again, I continue to find it really fascinating how Billions is sorting out its principal problem or, you know, the principles that Chuck has from the ego problems Chuck has. There's just a lot going on there. There's also some good Chuck Sacker stuff this week, which maybe we should just segue straight into best quotes. I think one of my favorites was when Chuck is handing down this impl- like illicit assignment to Sacker, who is the daughter of a media billionaire, basically, right? I think he's a mm-hmm. billionaire. Yeah. Uh, she's the daughter of a media billionaire and the man I will only ever refer to as Lou from Mad Men. <laughs> basically, they're like, okay, this is really gutsy. Uh, this isn't going to be easy. Sacker says, if we wanted to be the easy- in the easy business, we'd have gone to med school and Chuck responds, beaming with pride, I really have taught you well, which I felt was also a subtle, like, what you do is harder than what your wife does, which Chuck yeah. always needs that boost, you know? That's true. There are a few uh, moments like that, too, in the episode where uh, Chuck is is basically like, wow, I really have taught you well, huh? And there is that moment at the end where Sacker also says, you might have taught me too well. That could bite you someday, which is some interesting foreshadowing. Yeah, I think Sacker really is to Chuck what Taylor is to Axe. And something that Mallory Rubin has observed on this podcast, or I don't know, I'm getting all my billion stuff mixed up. But one of the things that Axe kind of has over Chuck is that he has this loyal team of people who take after him and are really dedicated to him. Chuck still doesn't have that as much, although he, at least for now, has a stable marriage where Axe does not. (laughs) But I think Sacker is really a move in that direction of someone who's a protege, which can be, as Axe is learning right now, kind of a double-edged sword. We should also probably talk a little bit more about the Axe side of this episode, um, which maybe a good segue into that would be Spiros's one appearance, <laughs> where he storms in, makes a, another failed pop culture reference, a classic Spiros move, shouting, Danger, Will Robinson. Axe speaks for all of us and just goes, what the fuck, Spiros? And the uh, secretary says, I couldn't stop him. He said it was DEFCON 6 urgent. Taylor points out the DEFCON scale only goes to five. Spiros (laughs) says exactly because he thinks he's like, you know, like 11 on an amp and spinal tap or something. He goes, exactly. And then Taylor goes, well, one is the most severe. And then he's like, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So just a real rapid fire exchange. But... Yeah, Axe really gets power-tripped, I think, by Andalov this episode, where he spends all 58 minutes trying to make up for the fact that Andalov is pulling, like, a billion and a half, I think, out of his fund. And then at the end, Andalov is like, JK, but I like seeing you squirm. 
Yeah, and and it was interesting too because you you do sort of see Grigor's influence at the beginning of the episode because you know uh, Axe is just casually playing tennis with Maria Sharapova, um, you know, a Russian former world number one, and it's also implied in that moment because Grigor greets them, and that's when he let lets Axe know that he's pulling out that money. That that's again something that he gets to set up because he is this you know famous Russian oligarch, and you know Sharapova is Russian American herself. So I, I do think that. Um, it, it was an interesting test from Grigor, and, and I think, you know, obviously he went about it through some nefarious means, but in a way, Axe basically passed the test. Yeah, and one of the means that he takes to try to make up this shortfall is he's desperate, and so he goes with what he refers to as an unpalatable idea <laughs> and goes to this guy, Froddy. <laughs> who- yeah, is it is it Froddy? Yeah, uh, it's short for fraudage or frottage. <laughs> oh yes, frottage. Yeah, I, I thought it was fraudage, but I guess that's that's what comes from when you only read that really gross term. It's just a it's a gross word for a gross person. That was Crumholtz, right? Yes. Yeah, that was David Crumholtz, an actor who is in keeping with his last prominent role, which is a porn director on The Deuce. He just great at sleaze balls. Really channels it here. And this is a guy who handles some really unsavory foreign money, which I think continues the very troubling trend of Axe being desperate and taking income and capital from sources that may not be people he wants to get in bed with in the long run. But what Axe and Wags find way more distasteful than Frotty's affiliates is the fact that he is what Wags refers to as, I believe, a mirepoix of psoriasis, dandruff, and irritable bowel syndrome, to which he replies, I don't have IBS, technically. (laughs) Yeah, what do we think of this whole Yeah, he's pretty unsavory. I think um, you could get that from his appearance and also the way that he was uh, slurping up some oysters from what looked like a pretty cheap restaurant when they meet him to discuss the terms. Look, I would not impugn the restaurant offerings of City Island, a very cool enclave in the Bronx. It's called <laughs> Sammy's Fish Box. It's like a little yes. other like houseboats and stuff. You know, cool day trip. I love that Billions is showing us the New York metropolitan area and all its diversity. But yeah, really gross oyster consumption, really gross allusions to his frat boy past. Just a bad leaves a bad taste in Axe's mouth, clearly. And he comes like this close to handing over 20% of the company. And what ends up being the line that Axe won't cross is Froddy demands total transparency. So he sees like the trades Axe makes, which is tantamount to demanding trade secrets and learning the secret sauce to what Axe does. At one point, he also flies that maybe he should have his name on the door, which I cannot believe anyone made that suggestion to Axe's face. Yeah, that was dismissed in a flash. (laughs) But we got this great exchange there that I think was one of both our nominations for best quotes of the week. So do you want to just read it off? Sure thing. So um, when Froddy implies to Axe that, you know, this is his only option and that he needs to make this deal, uh, Axe replies... I got billions of dollars, hundreds of employees, and two kids at home who think I can fly. Now, what the fuck do you have? Which is, uh, you know, a great point. And I think the only reason that Axe can, you know, respond this aggressively is because of what Taylor told him right before they started that meeting. And that was, um, you know, a subtle hint as to uh, who their boyfriend um, 
Oscar, aka Mike Birbiglia, um, was uh, meeting with at a dinner uh, the other night, and how that could also be uh, a play for acts. Yeah, that was really rough. I think we're going to talk about that a little later. But I actually think Froddy might have won that exchange. So after Axe, like, peacocks all up in his face, Froddy very simply responds, what do I have? I have the only thing you need, which is more. And that's a really good point. I think sometimes Billions tends to, you know, warp the warp the stakes or warp the perception of, like, where people stand. So Axe is so desperate, and then he rightfully points out, you know, I may be scrambling right now, but I'm still a billionaire. I'm only, you know, desperate by my standards of desperate. But he has this, you know, bottomless appetite to always be bigger, to always rush more. That's why he's okay with going in with Andalov and going in with this, like, shady Jordanian money. So I think both people got kind of a little own there. But I thought that was an interesting flash of billions has a, a way of continually signaling that, it, it knows what's going on. It is self-aware, and I really like that exchange as part of that. Let's get to some more awards after the break, but until then, a word from our sponsors. How do you know you're saving and investing for the life you want? Finances big and small can be confusing. I spend several hours a week thinking about billions, and I still don't understand half the things that go on in this show, most of them having to do with finance. Understanding the market can be intimidating. Fortunately, Betterment, the largest online financial advisor, is here to change that. Its mission is to help customers make the most of their money by taking complex investing strategies that would do acts proud and using technology to make them more efficient. At Betterment, hidden costs are nowhere to be found. No matter who you are or how much money you invest, you get everything for one low and transparent management fee. And as a fiduciary, they make recommendations in clients' best interest. They're not incentivized to recommend certain funds, and they don't have their own investment products to sell. Better yet, Betterment offers personalized advice and a suite of tools to help you know whether you're on track to hit your investment goals or get the retirement you want. Sign up today, and as a re- the Recapables Billions listener, you can get up to one year managed free. Remember, investing involves risk. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash IceJuice. That's Betterment.com slash IceJuice. So should we move on to the pop culture reference of the week? Let's do it. All right. Hit me with yours. All right. So mine was uh, right after uh, Taylor realizes that Axe uh, is investing in uh, the person that Oscar met for dinner with. And uh, do you remember, by the way, what he had? It was some kind of medical related app. All I know is that at one point he was like, there won't be doctors anymore. There will only be patients in the app, which is one of the most dystopian prospects of many <laughs> dystopian prospects that has floated on this show. And Billions is just as good at taking pot shots at weirdo tech people as it is at anyone else. But yeah, just uh, didn't appeal to me, but Oscar clearly saw dollar signs. Yeah, it didn't appeal to me either. Actually, this is kind of off topic, but it's it sounds like something I had at my old job, which is called Sherpa, which is basically like you sign on to like a thing on your computer and you just basically talk with a doctor online about your symptoms so you don't have to go go to the office, which, you know, it was nice that, you know, you don't have to go to a doctor's office, but it's also like, are you sure someone's going to diagnose me when I just write down my symptoms? So it was a bit give or take. Yeah, but basically you alluded to this. This Taylor mentions who they are having dinner with along with Oscar to Axe. Axe picks up on this and essentially poaches this company that Oscar was about to invest in. 
I don't quite know the ins and outs of the financial maneuvering, but basically Axe sabotages Oscar's deal with an inadvertent assist from Taylor in order to shore up his bottom line, which, like, single-handedly solves the Andalov problem, apparently. But at the direct expense of Taylor and Oscar's relationship. And I think we can infer from the tone of their converse of Taylor and Oscar's subsequent conversation, as well as Taylor's mopey walk through the meatpacking district, yeah. that that relationship is over. But, you know, I think that answers the question that we've been asking of what the purpose Oscar is going to serve in the show. He doesn't betray Taylor, nor does he advise Taylor to leave Axe Capital, but he does demonstrate to Taylor what some of the sacrifices of Axe Capital are. So I was wondering how you interpreted that split. Yeah, I was actually pretty surprised because um, we talked about this a few weeks ago. But my prediction was that I thought Oscar would betray Taylor and it would be, uh, you know, a lesson for for them about, you know, trusting other people in the industry when you're, you know, like romantically involved with them. So I, I was uh, pretty surprised that it was kind of an inverse of that and showed that um, Taylor, you know, in the bottom line, she's still going to subconsciously want to give Axe a play over you know, sustaining uh, a healthy relationship. So I think, obviously, when Taylor basically goes to Wendy and and uh, breaks down, I think uh, they finally realize, you know, this is how far we've gotten. And, you know, obviously that doesn't feel good. And they hug. Uh, <laughs> what a moment. I mean, it's sort of a little depressing because Taylor was just confronting Wendy about, you know, you are not putting the interests of Mephi first. You are valuing the company over the individual. And I think they're having this crisis of conscience right now where they're wondering if Axe is really right and whether they actually did implicitly want this to happen and want Axe to do the dirty work for them. Or they could decide that actually they didn't and Axe really did take advantage. Either way, I don't think this says good things about their relationship or the bond between Axe and Taylor, which has been in trouble for for a few weeks now. <laughs> yeah, it's been especially shaky once uh, he officially got back and is able to trade again because uh, he's also been uh, hesitant about, you know, giving her as as much money as she wants to work with and also shutting down the Quant project. So uh, I, I could see how Taylor would, uh, would feel a bit walled in. Yeah, and then they walk into, they storm into actually Axe's office and hit us with maybe the best pop culture reference of the week, which is this is where you would make some kind of reference to a gangster movie betrayal, and they could they proceed to debate the specifics. But the point is that Taylor understands the language of the firm, and they don't really want to indulge in it when they're in this, like, raw emotional state, state and Axe responds by quibbling with the specifics when that's not at all the point of what they're saying. Exactly. And I, I do think it was a, an interesting analogy to make, too, because, you know, I do feel like if we're looking at what today's equivalent of the mafia is, it would be someone exactly like Axe. Totally. And they actually, or uh, Axe actually has that conversation with Bruno where he basically is like, how did you avoid, or why did you avoid taking dirty money when you were first starting out? And Bruno responds, first of all, nothing is worth the terms of those deals, but also I get the pride of being able to stand up and say I started myself. And Axe is clearly talking about, you know, his version of seed money from the Queen's Outer Borough, et cetera, mob is taking money from Andalov and the Jordanians. And he doesn't give back Andalov's money, but he does end up turning down the deal with Fraudy, which brings me to my favorite pop culture reference of the week. 
the practice of rubbing against another person's clothed body in a crowd for sexual gratification. But for the record, it's pronounced frotage. Oh. It's totally gross. Unless you're Scar Joe and Joe Go and Don John, then it's hot as fuck. I like Bonnie. (laughs) (laughs) Bonnie is cool, although I have to say, confession, I've never seen Don John, but a Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Scarlett Johansson sex movie does sound like it could be hot as fuck. Yeah, Bonnie really made a a sell on that one. We'll talk more about her later, I think, but I would like to see more of her. My other vote for the pop culture reference of the week, it's not quite an official pop culture reference, but this was an unusually heavy episode on restaurant and chef in New York culture. Ivan Orkin is the latest chef cameo. I highly recommend his Chef's Table episode. They mentioned Nomad. They apparently could not finagle the Will Gadara cameo, but acts nonetheless name drops, and they do shoot there. They shoot multiple scenes there, in fact. And you get Sammy's fish box on Long Island. So I do love that this show considers food culture a part of popular culture. And this is a real standout episode for that. And our other cameo, you mentioned her before, is Maria Sharapova. How would you grade that performance? Um, You know, the tennis was good. And (laughs) I I do think it was uh, really interesting. You know, uh, Axe, we see one of his strokes was a one-handed backhand, perhaps in the spirit of Roger Federer. Maybe I'm thinking too much about it. Um, But, you know, it was, I think, a bit better than Kevin Durant. I I think she was just a bit more in her element. Yes, those tennis terms all sound like words that are accurate. (laughs) I definitely understand what you're talking about. I'm so glad that one of the two of us can actually... (laughs) I'm so glad that one of the two of us can actually pick up on that. But I actually, yeah, I thought she did... She acquitted herself pretty well. Certainly, you know, if Mark Cuban is the is the floor, and she definitely, oh, absolutely. she definitely exceeded that. So we should probably just move on to the MVPs and LVPs of the week. Do we do we disagree that the MVP is Ben Kim? It's Ben. No, Kim. no, it's it's <laughs> unanimous. <laughs> um, once again, Daniel K. Isaac, maybe not Emmy worthy, but future Emmy worthy. I could see him. You know, as Wendy says, he could really grow into a power player once he learns to break out of his shell and. He learns to do that in this episode. So I not only love this performance, I love this as a sign of his future in the firm or possibly on his own. That was excellent. But you also have an MVP candidate. We, we got to throw in a, a someone else. Yes. And I, I, I just got to give it to Axe. I mean, I, I don't approve of anything he did. But, you know, when Grieger pulled that money, he needed to do something. And regardless of how he did it, he did get the money back, plus Grigor put his money back into the firm, so Axe Cap is looking better than ever. And he solves the mystery of what happened to that little kid from Grigor's really creepy story last week. Yeah, did you see that coming at all? That really threw me for a loop. I didn't really understand what was happening, because Axe, you know, there are a few loaded glances once Grigor introduces Axe to his current wife, his ex-wife, and his mother, and Axe just can't stop, like, looking at his mother, who's this very fragile, shy woman, and he kind of comes out with it, but that's sort of what makes Axe Axe, is that he's able to read the room that way. But I did like that as an as an ending for that story. Yeah, that was really interesting. I, I'll be honest, I was, I, I tried to read the room like Axe, and I was like, did he hire these people to say that they're his family, but they're really not because he wants to keep everything a secret? (laughs) (laughs) It was like, okay, that's completely off. (laughs) That's some five-dimensional chess right there. 
Yeah. Yeah. Also, another great restaurant scene, you know, getting the specific... Do you know where that was? It looks like somewhere uh, in, like, Brighton Beach or something. Yeah, I have no idea. I, I, I would assume maybe somewhere in Bay Ridge. I just wrote down Russian-ass dinner in my recap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's also some giant, like, lute-like instrument in the background that I was really curious about. But, yeah, uh, I'm glad to see that Andalov is making himself right at home. So in terms of LVPs, we love Taylor on this podcast. This we was do. not their best episode, I love their relationship with Oscar, and I was really bummed to see it go. I think they're really reckoning with what it means to throw their lot in with someone like Axe. I think Axe, I don't think, is necessarily acting super smart by, you know, walking all over Taylor and disregarding their decisions and jerking them around. But this is an episode that really showcased their the weaknesses of their position as opposed to the strengths of it. And, you know... Billions has been heavily foreshadowing this for a while, but I think this was just, like, some extra, I think a break is coming, and this was why they did not get treated very well. No, and, um, yeah, I, I do think that, you know, again, if if Connerty, who was uh, Chuck's first mentor, if that's going to be his adversary in the foreseeable future, you know, that's that's going to be an extension for Axe with Taylor. Yeah, and there's a, that's an interesting, like, direction for the show to go in, right? Where instead of two mm-hmm. people in from different spheres kind of going at each other laterally, it's those same people who are who are in a struggle with their proxy kids. But your LVP was an, an actual kid. <laughs> <laughs> yes, unfortunately, got to give it to Gordy. I just feel so bad for the guy, like, or for the kid, rather. Um, you know, it was his birthday and acts, um was uh, I believe it was an hour late because he had that meeting with Froddy um, at the uh, Oyster Place. Uh, sorry, I keep forgetting the name. <laughs> I, I, Sammy's I, Fish I, Box. I, apologies to Sammy's Fish Box. But Axe, you know, when he gets there, I, I think maybe he says hello really quickly, but, you know, doesn't really have that much interest in going over to see Gordy. He hangs out with Bruno instead. And, I mean, Gordy in the moment, he seems content. He's playing a game of FIFA, and that's pretty much all I play on my roommate's PS4. So, you know, it's a fun game. But, you know, Gordy, in five years, he has, like, affluenza teen written all over him, and he's going to need a buttload of therapy. <laughs> that he will. But, yeah, like, when Axe basically says, I need to leave, I need to go to kids, my kid's birthday party, the first thing I wrote in my notes is like, oh, so now he cares about the kid? And <laughs> it turns out that he still shows up an hour late, even when he's trying to be there. So... Also, this folds into our traditional territory for LVP. This was Lara's only appearance in this episode. And she is, like, fully turned into the stereotype of, like, the... Nagging is not a good word, but the she's turned into a very stereotypical ex-wife character, I would say. Yes, definitely. And then we also get that with their sister, too, who I don't think we've seen in quite some time just uh, quipping at Axe as well, which is funny because... They're basically like, look what the cat drag did. And he's like, well, you, you're you in my apartment, so hi. <laughs> yeah, but they're the people who keep Axe grounded, you know, and that's part of what his relationship with Lara was. It was that they came up together, and so they understood each other, and she, you know, kept him at a... I guess she lost all perspective as well because she didn't think she could live on $300 million for the rest of her life, but... <laughs> the tragedy. But, you know, he needs people around him who are razzing him like that. And the fact that he doesn't respond well has shown that he's already kind of lost his ability to deal with that. But 
I think all members of the Axelrod family didn't really look great. I I would have to disagree with your MVP designation just because Axe is just not in a great corner right now. I don't know. But, you know, that there's obviously going to be more developments in terms of the Andalov saga, which brings us to, we're winding down, what are you looking forward to next week? That, you know, one of the last things we see in the episode is Axe going over, or it is the last thing we see this episode is Axe visiting his mom, who we've never seen before. Um, and, I, I mean, I, I'm curious, you know, we, we do know that his dad is a deadbeat, but have we gotten anything on what his mom was like? I don't think so. I mean, first of all, I think most of that was back in season one, which is just, there's there's just so much TV. I don't have time to remember anything <laughs> that happened like more than two weeks ago in TV, let alone several years ago. But I think the impression I always got of Axe's mom was that she was just like a blue collar lady who tried her best. Although there is that line earlier in the episode that I'm going to mess up because I didn't write it down. But it's when he's doing the... Um, when he's playing with Sharapova and Andalov asks him, like, did your mother teach you, I think, something like, work hard, you'll get results or something like that. And Axe very slyly says, like, no, the opposite. So it doesn't mm-hmm. sound like they have a great relationship. It does not sound like when he shows up at her doorstep that they have seen each other in a while, although she is living in a pretty nice house. So he's clearly fulfilled what he sees as his obligation to her. But Axe is not... This Wendy aside does not seem like a personal therapy type, so I'm very curious how this is what we're going to learn about his psychology. Yeah, I, I have a feeling it'll be uh, pretty messy, but um, who knows? You know, maybe that breakthrough with Andalov and Andalov's mom will make him uh, look back on their relationship and maybe resent her a little bit less, and maybe he'll pay her more attention than Gordy. One can only hope. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Mine is a little more lower scale. We've had some really great spotlights on individual Axe Cap traders this year. Dollar Bill has gotten some really good stuff. Mafia has gotten some really good stuff. Just now, Ben Kim. Just wonderful. You know, Bonnie's new on the team, but I think she's already earned the ability to get her own spotlight episode. I think they're they're gonna do it because they just need to explain like how she ended up there and how she ticks and how she fits in with the rest of the team. But she's made, you know, for such little screen time, she's already made such a big impression. So I just want her own, you know, when is she gonna step into Wendy's office? Does she not wanna step into Wendy's office? How does she get along with Wags? Just something along those lines that's I, lo- I live for, like, the smaller billion subplots that, you know. Like dollar bill losing his dollar bill. Exactly. <laughs> that's all I want out of the show. I love some episodic hijinks. So that's really what I'm looking forward to in the weeks to come. But I think that brings an end to our podcast this week. So, Miles, thank you, as always, for helping to parse this very complicated, very wonderful show. We'll see you next week. <laughs>